Sunday school, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and then put your little ribbon there, or whatever you like for your thumb, or your marker of some sort, and then let's turn over to Acts chapter 26, Acts 26. We're going to spend the majority of our time in Acts 26, but I'd like to use Sunday school today to remind us of what we're hearing in the book of Ephesians, which is where we are being um, sort of worshipped here. wherever you want, but we're going to be in two places, Ephesians 5 and Acts 26, Ephesians 5 and Acts 26. Okay, hey, thank you for praying last week for uh, me, Ms. Young, like I said, at Orchard Hill Bible Church, um, trying to, uh, the pastor, I, I'd asked the pastor if their church would consider supporting our parsonage project, which, by the way, is going great, um, and uh, things continue to move along apace. Um, Kyle, did all the electrical get finished yesterday? The rough and electrical. All the rough and electrical is done. I think our plumber said he's got one more week left on the plumbing. Uh, all the HVAC is in. Uh, we're waiting for doors and windows and all sorts of stuff. But things are going well. We're uh, under budget and ahead of schedule. And so I'm like, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody say those two words together, or those two phrases together. And the Lord is to be praised for... Uh, both of those things. And so we're just moving forward, and thank you for praying, and uh, please uh, be paying attention to Pastor Dom's emails, as uh, that will help us to know when the most important work days are coming. Um, so I was down there, and uh, he asked me to uh, talk about the Seagull Lily Foundation and some of the things we have uh, going on down there, uh, going on with the, the foundation. And so that went really well. Their people were very eager and receptive. And uh, I'm going to be doing the same thing in two weeks at a church over in Mountain Green. Uh, it's called Morgan Valley Church, I believe. I don't think it's Morgan Valley Bible Church. I think it's just Morgan Valley Church. But don't hold me to that. I will know by the time I arrive there in a few weeks. Okay? And so we're going to be doing the same thing. And so I appreciate, I appreciate uh, your prayers uh, that, that as these churches consider whether to partner with us, that that would be something the Lord might lay on their hearts. And so, uh, so yeah, so thank you for praying. And I do apologize for having to be a little in and out, uh, but we are trying to kind of raise funds and so forth. And it's, we feel a small price to pay for uh, what could be a big return. So, okay, I had you turn to Acts uh, chapter 26 and Ephesians 5. Let's be in Ephesians 5 first, okay? Let's be in Ephesians 5 first. And let's go to verse 15. Okay? Verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And now, here's the part I want you to really listen to. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing 
and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Listen to these words for a moment, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to, that's, that, that's what makes up the bulk, the majority of this little section of scripture. This is sort of the point that Paul is driving home to. Now, you might expect to hear this from a man who's sitting on a feathered bed or drinking sumptuously, eating handsomely. You might expect this to come from the Joel Osteens of the world. Live your best life now. But I'd like to remind us that Paul is actually writing this from a dungeon. Okay, He's sitting probably in something a lot like the Mamertine prison. If you don't know what the Mamertine prison is, you can go look that up in Wikipedia and you can see pictures of it. That's the traditional location of Paul's imprisonment. It may have been there, it may not have been there. But I think we can safely assume that it was something like that. Okay? It's a basement carved out of granite. The sun never gets in there. It's moist and dank, wet, rat-infested, and not the sort of place that you would expect to hear be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always for everything. But such was the Spirit filling of this man, Paul, that even in these dire circumstances, even sitting in prison, he could write to us with such joy for joy. And I want us to review quickly what landed Paul there so that he could write these words here. Does that make sense? <laughs> so turn back now to Acts 26, where I'd had you turn before. I did a brilliant thing. I put my ribbon in Acts 5, and then now I don't have a marker for Acts 25, but I think I can find it again. Acts 26. And here in Acts 26, we see that Paul is uh, speaking to a king. This king is a king in the loosest possible terms. <laughs> king Herod Agrippa. Um, he, so, so you know, the way the Romans worked their government is they set up little puppet governments and they would allow the people who were subjected to them to be ruled, ruled is a very loosely coined term, ruled by their own kings and customs and laws and so forth. And as long as that king would be loyal to Rome, as long as he would make sure to collect taxes, Rome was more than happy to finance that kingship. So Herod was a king in that sense. He was Rome appointed, he was a ruler, but he was basically given a, an allowance, a daily allowance by the Roman government. He 
lived by kingly standards a very modest life. He had very little opinion for himself. He understood Jewish customs, and he, his job, his central job, was to keep the Jewish people happy and paying taxes. Okay? That was his job. And so here is Herod and his wife Bernice. They're Roman servants, and they happen to be in the area, and the Apostle Paul is going to be speaking to them. Now, I have you in Acts 26, but let's, it, it says right here in verse 1, So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He says, I consider it fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Let's review very quickly how Paul ended up here. How, is it, how was it that he ended up in front of this King Agrippa, along with this fella named Festus. Well, as we're going to review a little bit later, I'll mention it briefly just now, Paul's original name was Saul. It's a good Jewish name, first king of Israel. Saul was brought up in a Jewish home, a Jewish home of the highest caliber. In fact, they were, not only, they were probably a wealthy home. They were Roman citizens, and Paul was born into his Roman citizenship. Paul was, Paul's parents were Pharisees, and he followed them into this Pharisaical lifestyle. It was a life that was rule-bound, very rule-bound. Most Pharisees did not invest themselves in their intellect. They were kind of hard-charging rule followers. But there were some sections of Pharisees that were quite intellectually minded. And that happened to be Paul's group. In fact, he went on to sit under what was considered a major teacher of the day, Gamaliel. And he learned all the Jewish traditions. He learned all the intricacies of Jewish, Judaic, theology, philosophy, etc. Paul's understanding of philosophies around him was profound. He frequently alludes to Roman religions, Athenian religions. He, he understands the language. Paul is a, is a brilliant man who's been trained in the highest schools of Jewish learning. He's really, I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. I said Paul. Saul is an is a intellectual powerhouse who's been raised in a very strict religious home, a very narrow, strict set called the Pharisees. So as we'll find out in a minute, the Apostle Paul is, becomes the Apostle Paul. He's converted to Christ, and he begins preaching everywhere. He begins preaching the gospel. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. And Christ specifically sent him to the Gentiles. And he's traveling all over the Roman Empire, preaching and teaching the gospel. In fact, he lands at Ephesus, plants the church in Ephesus, among many other churches, like at Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and all over the Roman Empire, Antioch. And he's circling back around, and he visits Jerusalem. He says that he had a vow 
I'm not totally sure what that vow was, what it meant, why he had to go to the temple to uh, finish off this vow, but that's why he went there. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he met the leading pastor of Jerusalem, James. And James said, you know, Paul, there's some people here who believe that you are attacking our very seriously held Jewish customs. That you're telling Jewish people to totally throw off the law. Now, we've already made a decision on this, Paul, as you know. And Paul had, in fact, been one of the ones to deliver that decision all over the empire regarding Gentiles. And James has an idea. He says, we want you to prove that there's nothing in these accusations, and we want you to go worship in the temple, take these brothers with you who also want to go, pay their way, and everybody will see that there's no truth in these accusations at all. And Paul says, well, that sounds fun. And so that's what he does. And every day goes by without incident until the last day. And on the last day, some Jewish people accuse Paul of bringing a Gentile into what's called the balustrade. Very, very bad thing to do. There, in fact, there are preserved signs that archaeologists have uncovered that read, any Gentile who enters this court does so on penalty of their own lives. Your blood is on your own head. If you're, if you're not Jewish and you enter this area, we're going to kill you. And it's your fault. And they had them posted all up around. I guess maybe pulling back out of this for just a moment, I don't like to read signs because they tell you things that you probably don't want to read. And my wife, though, is a sign reader and obeyer, okay? And when we first got married, I would always say, you know, why are you reading the sign? If you read the sign, then you can't say, oh, I didn't see the sign. But now that we've seen the sign, so just stop reading the signs. She's like, I don't like not reading the signs. And I'm like, I don't like reading signs. And eventually, after years of counseling, she's, she doesn't read signs anymore, okay? <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> um, I'm teasing. No, so I guess this might make me rethink my standard operating procedure of not reading signs because you'd be in trouble if you did it. Well, they accused him. Paul brought a Gentile into the court, blood on his own head. Riot breaks out. And the authorities imprison Paul for his own safety. And they're like, we've got to figure out what's going on here. And what follows is a progression of these Roman leaders of Jewish people who are playing hot potato with the Apostle Paul. They put yourself in their position for just a minute. Caesar, who, by the way, right now is Nero, doesn't want to be bothered by matters in a backwater town. And if you can't manage your own stuff, maybe he would rethink having you be in the position that you're in. So they need to take care of it themselves. The other thing they have to do is keep Jewish people happy. And Jewish people are definitely not happy right now. They want the Apostle Paul dead, but legally they can't kill him. And these 
Roman governors are caught in between. They're trying to solve it without getting Caesar involved, while at the same time keeping Jewish people happy. And it turns out they were in an impossible position and couldn't keep it all figured out. Okay? So there's this fella, Felix, and he keeps Paul in prison for two years because he wants some money from somebody to either release Paul or get him killed. And then a newbie comes in, and his name is Festus. He takes over for Felix. And he's a little more eager. And he gives Paul a trial. Now, he too wants to do the Jews a favor. And he says, Paul, I'm going to, they're in a Roman city called Caesarea. He says, Paul, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem so that you can answer your accusers there. And the Apostle Paul knows what Felix doesn't know. I'm sorry, what Festus doesn't know. If we go on that road, we're going to get ambushed and killed. Okay? And so Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. You cannot, you legally cannot send me back to Jerusalem. Send me instead the other direction to Rome. And that was Paul's right as a Roman citizen. Many Bible scholars have debated whether he should have done that or not. They base that on a statement that Agrippa makes later. Had he not appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go free. But that kind of strikes me as the sort of thing that a leader says when he's looking for an excuse and has been let off the hook. Oh, I would have let him go. Now that I can't let him go, I'm free to say that. You see what I'm saying? That strikes me as a pretty self-serving thing of Agrippa to say at that point. Well, at any rate. So Paul appeals to Caesar, don't send me back to Jerusalem, send me to Jerusalem too, or send me to Rome. And now Festus is in a real pickle. He says, oh man, I, wanna, I don't want to send this guy to Caesar because I want to be known as a guy that can get my job done. Ah, as luck would have it, the Jewish king, Herod, is coming into town. Maybe he will hear the case and have a bright idea over what to do. And so, Paul gives a defense in front of Herod and Festus on his way back to Rome to stand trial there. Everybody, pardon me, everybody following so far? Okay, any questions? Okay, so Paul is giving his defense in front of Herod, this Jewish puppet. He's already appealed to Caesar. That's probably where he's going. And so Paul begins to describe to Herod what his life was like prior to coming to Jesus. Let's look at verse 9 of Acts 26. Let's look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were uh, put to death, I cast my vote against them. If you like to write in your Bible for verse 9, you might want to note that the grammar here is actually much stronger than even what our translators were able to bring in. Okay. I have a very literal, clunky translation that I'm not suggesting should be in our Bibles because it's too clunky, but this is the level of severity that the Apostle Paul is saying. 
He says, I myself was convinced then in my own mind that I must of divine necessity perform hostilities to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that, that's more along the lines of what he's saying. I myself was convinced of a divine necessity to perform, to do hostilities to these people. Here he is, as a Christian now, talking about his former life as a persecutor of Christians. What do hostile deeds look like? The word that he uses, these hostile deeds, is only used here in one other place by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in a very similar context. So we don't exactly know what that always means. But in the very next verse, he elaborates in verse 10 and 11. He says, I imprisoned them. And it could literally be translated, I imprisoned them in prison. Okay? He, that's why it says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison. The, the, it's a, it, he, he uses uh, the same Greek root to emphasize that he was detaining them. In detention. He was imprisoning them in prison. And then he goes on to say that after receiving authority from the chief priest, he, he himself did not have the authority to kill them. But when it came time for their execution, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was an all too willing advocate of their death. Now, he may not have been given the authority of execution for Christians, but he was given the authority to do everything but kill them. And he elaborates again on that in the next verse. He says, verse 11, And I punished them often in all places, in, I'm sorry, in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. This word punished is really the word flogged. Okay, flogged. Flogging was a technical term. And it refers to, you've heard of the cat of nine tails. Uh, a leather whip, a wooden handle, and there would be strands of leather coming off of this whip. And the tips of the leather had hooks and um, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, they, they used it for cutting tools. Um, flint, hooks, flint, stones, all sorts of nasty things they would put onto the ends of those leather straps. And they were permitted to whip people up to 39 whips. 39. I mean, imagine allowing your back to be hit with that once. And Paul says that he would do this in the synagogues. He would gather Jews in a public place and stretch these people out over a wooden plank and brandish the whip in front of them and command them to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when they refused to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, he'd strike them with that whip publicly. And he was permitted to do that up to 39 times. 
the Romans called this the half death because half the time the victims died of their wounds and infections. And the Apostle Paul says, in my rage, that's the word he uses, in my insanity. That the word is this, he says, in my hostility, in my rage, I was in raging fury against them. Is, uh, the word he uses is this intense anger, fury. Later in this context, Jesus is going to say something. He says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And what almost every interpreter has taken that to mean is that he cannot figure these Christians. He is whipping them. And they're counting it joy that they've been worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in front of their friends and family and loved ones, in front of their heritage, they will not recant the Lord Jesus Christ. And it made him matter and matter and matter. It made him so angry that he could not break these Christians. That he got letters to go to foreign cities. And one of those foreign cities was Damascus. He's going to go on and say this. And while he was on his way to Damascus, while he was on his way to Damascus, verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, brighter than the sun. I always think, when I read that phrase, several years ago, there was a, uh, a solar eclipse. And there was a scientist who was working part-time in the office that I worked in. He was a science teacher. And uh, this is during the school year. And then during the summer, he would uh, work at our office and do some work. And, and uh, the day of the solar eclipse, he brought in a contraption that he'd made so that we could look at the sun. It was a mask that had, I think he said it was a double welder's mask. He doubled the, the thing for a welder's mask. And if you just glanced up at the sun, you couldn't see any different on the solar eclipse. But when you put on the, the contraption that he made, now, you know, maybe it was my naivete. I trusted the scientist that this was safe to do, but he said it was safe. So I was like, okay, I'll trust so you looked at the sun through this, this, uh, this, you know, double welder's visor contraption thingy, and you could see the eclipse. You could see like these sunspots. It was so cool, but that that thing reduced the intensity of the sun such that you could look at it a little bit. That's the severity of the sun. Think, like yesterday, <laughs> July thirtieth. Man, it was hot yesterday. The summer sun, not a cloud in the sky, high noon, look up at it. And it says that Jesus, when he appeared, to Saul of Tarsus on the way, shone brighter than the sun. At midday, at midday, he outstripped the sun. And it knocked Paul and all of his companions down to the ground. Now, I want you to notice very quickly 
the prerogatives that Jesus takes here. Okay? I've mentioned this many times before, and we need to get this through our heads. Jesus has the audacity to act like a king. Okay? Jesus doesn't... Jesus is the king of kings. And he tends to act like it. Okay? Listen to what he says to Paul, or to Saul of Tarsus, who will soon be Paul. And when we had all fallen to the ground, verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not intended to be answered, by the way. It's a rhetorical question. This is insane what you're doing. This is foolish. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? Saul understands that the person he's talking to is God. But he doesn't know him. He doesn't recognize him. And in fear and trembling, he's saying, like Isaiah did, I have, I'm seeing the king. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now listen. Listen to the command. But rise, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, uh, which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may return from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness for their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. King Jesus says, get on your feet. I'm sending you. And I'm sending you with a message. And here's the message. Now go. The king doesn't come to Paul and say, you know, I would really like, I would really beg you to take upon yourself my kingship. And the king doesn't come to Paul and say, would you be willing to believe me? I, I would really beg you to believe me. And the king doesn't even come to Paul and say, let me convince you of the need to preach for me. No, no, the king comes to Paul and says, get up. You're mine now. Go. And Paul says, okay. <laughs> right here, he says to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Well, you'd better not have been, Okay. And here I want to focus in on what Paul's mission is. He says, I appoint you as a servant. Now, when I read that in my English translation, I assumed that it was the Greek word diakonos. That's very often the word that's used for servant. But it's not. It's not the word diakonos that we get our word deacon from. It's a different word. It's a word that refers to an officer of the court. This is a word that would a king would use of a special envoy who he had given special authority to carry out the will of the king. We've been reading about this, if you've been following along in our Bible reading, through the book of Nehemiah. Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah on a mission. To rebuild the wall. 
Ezra, the same thing. He had a commission. He was an envoy with authority and commission from the king to go and rebuild the temple. And so, by using this word, Paul is saying, I was given a special commission with unique authority to carry out the prerogative of the king. I'm a servant of it and a subject of him. And my commission is to be a witness. My commission is to be a witness to what I've seen, to what I will see. My job is to open my mouth and speak so that Gentile people will open their That's the commission the Apostle Paul was given. He says, I'm sending you as an envoy with special authority to open their eyes. And then there's four purposes. I want you to open their eyes not so that they'll have a happy life. I want you to open their eyes not so that they can accumulate riches to themselves. There's a reason I want you to open their eyes. You need to open their eyes to their darkness open their eyes to their sin, open their eyes to their bondage, open their eyes to the forgiveness that I will offer them, and open their eyes to the eternal reward that I'm offering them instead of the darkness that they have. He says, I want you to open their eyes so that they'll turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God, to receive forgiveness for sins and to receive eternal reward. That's Paul's special commission as an envoy. To open people's eyes to these realities such that they will be persuaded to accept Now, in the time that we have left in Sunday school, I would like us to come to terms with the fact that we have been given the same commission. Okay. And let your mind for one moment drift to the alternative Christian means of evangelism that have been presented to you. Through the years. And I would encourage you to consider them all inferior. Okay? Every word we say, every decision we make, every opportunity we take, the way that we dress, the way that we work, the way that we conduct ourselves, Every interaction that we have with the unbelieving world ought to be to open their eyes. Peter says it this way. Simply by refusing to take place, take part in their debauchery, you will open their eyes to their sin and they will malign you. 
So simply refusing to participate in the world's activities is a way of opening eyes. But it can't stop this. It can't stop this. There has to be verbal reinforcement of the message. And a life that doesn't undercut Imagine going to your office day in and day out, telling people about Jesus and the Lord crucified and what he's done for you and the grace that he's shown you. And then suddenly, a deep, unconfessed, long, I'm not talking about a one-off stumble, okay? Long-term lifestyle choice comes to light. And it's clear that darkness has been dominating. Does that open people's eyes further? Or does it close them? And so I would, I would strongly urge us all to take to heart our commission help people's eyes get a little wider every day. And not all of us have a lot of interaction with unsaved people. I know you guys up at the camp, you might go, you're going to be surrounded by Christians all week long, but that's not all of us. Many of us have day-to-day interaction, and you might say, you know, I'm on company time. I can't be having a Bible study on company time. I get that. I'm not saying you should. But everything else about your life needs to commend this gospel that you serve and that you've been called to so that you can open people's eyes to turn from darkness to light, from Satan to God, to receive forgiveness for sins and an eternal inheritance, an eternal reward. All right, well, let's pray. And let's remember, this is the man who writes to us in Ephesians 5. Fair enough? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn. I pray that we would take so seriously our commission to see eyes open. And I pray that we would really think hard about our lives and what we're presenting. If what we're presenting is true of you, May we commend the gospel with hearts and lives and attitudes that are gracious and kind and loving and joyful and filled with the Spirit. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.